All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, I titled the sermon, Rejoicing in Present Distress, and I hope in some ways we can all relate to that. Uh, not that we're always all distressed, but that this side of eternity, we have distressing things that are going on in our lives. Right? Paul says in Romans eight twenty two through 23, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions, adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so the phrase present distress kind of uh, encapsulates two things for me. The first is the present, right? The situation you are in right now. Uh, your your current moment, your your life situation. The the second, the, the word distress should bring about the idea of suffering, discomfort, and need. And so that's that's kind of what I want us to think about as we approach this text today from uh, Philippians one twelve through eighteen a, which is your current moment, where you are right now, as well as the need that you have, the discomfort that you're feeling. So there are a lot of things that can cause distress, right? We know that there are civil is civil unrest going on we know that there is a pandemic going on but more than that we have our individual lives things that are going on uh with us right now like earl mentioned the johnsons with with uh jim passing away or things that are going on your broken relationships your strained family relationships declining health sins that you're fighting all those things I want us to keep that at the forefront of our minds as we read and examine this text. Because what Paul does in this text is he presents situations and distress in his life, in his present. And he brings that forward as an example to the Philippians, and in light of that, how they should approach their own discomforts. The first that he talks about is his imprisonment. And there's two aspects to his imprisonment I want us to look at. The first is the idea of unforeseen circumstance. That is, Paul is in prison, and that's not something he anticipated or wanted to be. He wanted to be out preaching the gospel. He wanted to go to the ends of the earth and talk about Jesus, and yet he's chained to a Roman guard. The next is the idea of persecution. That Paul is in prison because of persecution, because of his preaching the gospel, he's being persecuted, he's in prison. And then lastly, the idea of opposition or rivalry, right? So Paul talks about that in this text as well. And he brings those forward as current situations. And then he talks about how he views those situations in light of Jesus, so if you would, look with me at the text, Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far greater courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? 
only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. So again, the three circumstances we'll be looking at is unforeseen circumstances, persecution, and opposition or rivalry. And in each of those, Paul demonstrates that he and others look at, do the opposite of what's expected, right? Paul talks about how he rejoices. Paul doesn't actually mention his own distress, his own discomfort. Instead, he talks about how he rejoices. So in each of these circumstances, what Paul does is interpret it in light of Christ and the gospel. So we'll look at each of these circumstances. The first is unforeseen circumstances, right? Verse 12 through 13, Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. I'm calling Paul's imprisonment here unforeseen circumstances. What I mean by that is that he did not expect or want to be in prison. But Paul is in prison, and the word he uses, imprisonment, actually literally means bonds or chains. And so he's purposely bringing to mind this very vivid imagery of chains, him being bound. Now, Paul isn't in some dirty cell, right? He's actually in rented quarters. He's in a house, but he's trying to, to, to say something. He's trying to give us the image of his deprivation of freedom. He's being deprived of movement. And so... He's saying, I'm physically being chained. I can't move. I can't do the things that I want to do. And we know that Paul was an extremely busy guy. He's kind of hyperactive, right? He's always busy doing something. He was busy writing. He was busy preaching. He was busy evangelizing, shepherding, tent making, discipling, going on missionary trips. He was even busy being stoned, shipwrecked, all sorts of things. Now, that's all come to a screeching halt, literally physically a halt. He's stuck. God pumped the brakes, and Paul is literally bound to this one place, chained to guards. This is not something Paul wanted. He had other plans. And Paul mentions the Praetorian Guard here. Now, the Praetorian Guard were basically 9,000 elite soldiers. They're the Imperial Guard. They were hand-selected because of their military ability to protect the emperor. Kind of think of like special forces mixed with like secret service or something, right? These are, these are elite soldiers. And we don't know if it's actually the Praetorian guards that are chained to Paul, but we do know they know about Paul. They do know about his circumstance and specifically about Christ. And so rather than wallowing in depression, rather than being upset about his circumstance, Paul preaches the gospel, right? He takes his circumstance and rejoices in it by seizing the moment, seizing control of it, and telling them about the glory of God. We have this imagery that's kind of a reversal, right? Paul is captive, being held by captors, and he holds them captive by preaching Christ to them. They can't leave him. They're chained to him, and he preaches Christ to them. That's what he does. He tells them about Jesus. This passage shows us that we can rejoice even in the midst of our unforeseen circumstances. So I was literally printed this out. I was making notes on it yesterday. And I'm editing it, and I knock over my screen. It falls. I just bought this thing, by the way. Falls, hits the corner of a desk, and cracks. And my first reaction is, oh, no. Money that I just lost. Now I have to pay for it, right? All, and, and it's a little thing. And the, my first immediate reaction is not, this is, this is to God's glory. No, my immediate reaction is selfishness. I'm upset about it. 
But then I have to stop because I'm literally writing this and go, okay, how do I make this about the glory of God? And I get to use it in my sermon as an illustration. But that, that's how we're supposed to think, right? Paul wants us to think about, okay, we, we have these unforeseen circumstances. How do we use it to the glory of God? How do we talk about Jesus through it? We can do that by taking hold of our circumstance. We can do that because we need to fill our guards' ears with Jesus. When they hold us captive, we tell them about Jesus. We need to seek an orientation in our life, our direction about the gospel. I'm someone who likes to be busy. Now, I can't imagine what it would be like to have all of that come to a screeching halt, being confined to a single space. Why do I like foreseeable circumstances? I think I do because of comfort, of how much I I can control things and feel comfortable that I know what to expect, how to react, what to do. But I'm a creature of comfort, and comfort can sometimes lull us to sleep. It can make us think that comfort is what will make us content. Now, I'm not against comfort, and I know Paul isn't either. Later, he talks about how he's uh, how he can be content both in being full and not, right? How he can be uh, having abundance in abundance and not. He's not talking about don't have abundance, and he's not talking about try to seek asceticism. What he's talking about, though, is the idea that you find content, you should not find contentment in being full. You should not find contentment in having abundance. What we should find contentment in is a life lived for Jesus. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. Comfort lulls us to sleep rather than stirs us up to do the work of God. And so we need to keep that in mind. This isn't something unique to Paul either, right? You can do a cursory search and you'll find all sorts of people who are living lives that is not in comfort, yet glorifying God. So one such person, I'm going to mess up this name, is Crystal Koletsev. It's a mouthful of a name. He was arrested for the crime of preaching the gospel. That's it. He, he lived in Bulgaria, and he was placed on trial. It was kind of a mock trial, and they sentenced him to eight months in prison. Guess what he did in his eight months in prison? You're, you guessed right. He said of this, Both prisoners and jailers asked many questions, and we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in church. God was better served in our presence in prison than if we had been free. He did what Paul did, right? He held captive that unforeseen circumstance, and he preached Christ. It reminds me of Joseph, in, for example, when he was sold into slavery, and he tells his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And is that how I view my circumstances when we're thwarted by unforeseen circumstances, do I utilize it, right? We, we're, we tend to, as Reformed Calvinists, we tend to say God is in control, right? God is doing something good out of this, but there's two sides to it. God is doing something good out of it, and he also suspects us to do something, right? Joseph didn't just go to Egypt and trust God. He also did things. He also took control of that situation to the glory of God. So instead of sitting around passively, how am I thinking about how I can use my circumstance to talk about Jesus? How do I utilize that unforeseen circumstance? How am I bringing about the good God has planned? Are there comforts in your lives that is lulling you, are lulling you to sleep? 
When those things are taken away, do you complain? Do you get frustrated? Do you get discouraged? Or do you rejoice by preaching Christ through those circumstances? How often am I actively seeking to proclaim Jesus? And we're in very strange times right now, aren't we? We have riots going on in major cities every night of the week. We're going around wearing masks. I'd never worn a mask before until recently, other than maybe in the hospital. We can't hug each other. We can't go and sit indoors at a restaurant and eat dinner. We can't go to the gym. We can't technically even be indoors gathering as a church. These are all unforeseen circumstances. They're all discomforting, distressing. So how do we seize that moment and talk about the gospel of Jesus? And not in some vague way, but actually actively talk about that gospel We should be expecting things to be distressing because Jesus has not yet returned, right? We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, and we're waiting for the renewed body, the renewed creation. We need to talk about Jesus. We need to ask ourselves what we find comfort in, what circumstances and situations and things that we find so much comfort in that we forget that we're looking to that for our contentment rather than to Jesus, We forget our mission, which is to make disciples of all nations, to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, our minds, our strength, our soul, to love God with our entire being and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So I pray that we'll be able to see that in our lives. The next circumstance Paul brings up is persecution. Now listen to what Paul says, and it's very strange if we take a close look at what he actually says. Verse 14, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Break that sentence down. What Paul is saying is that these Christians, these brothers in Rome had more courage They became fearless because of Paul's imprisonment. So they see his chains. They know about it. And because of that persecution, they say, you know what? Because you're in jail, because you evangelize, I want to do that. I want to imitate that. They seized the work of proclamation of the gospel, even though they knew that imprisonment was the result. This is counterintuitive, and it reminds me of other first century Christians, right? We know about the Colosseum, where tens of thousands of Roman Roman citizens would join in and watch Christians be torn apart by wild animals, and yet evangelism continued. These Christians continued to preach the gospel, talk about the gospel, talk about Jesus, despite the fact that they could be thrown into a giant arena and be killed, be eaten by wild animals, and it's not as if they didn't know that, right? That these were probably their friends, their neighbors, their brothers, sister, parents, children that were being killed. And yet they took courage from it in the face of death to say that we, they will continue without fear to proclaim Jesus. It's not only if we have that kind of courage, do we want that kind of courage? Do we want to be able to do that? I want it. I don't know if I can, but God supplies grace, and we need to pray that he'll give it to us. John MacArthur recently released a statement regarding the indoor church gatherings or the ban on it. And he, in a way, assumes persecution. Now, 
whether or not we hold to the view that there is actually persecution going on, I think it's a good example to look at what MacArthur says. To preface uh, what he talks about, MacArthur says the nature of the church. The church, by definition, is an assembly. That is literally the meaning of the Greek word for church, ecclesia, the assembly of the called out ones. A non-assembly, a non-assembling assembly is a contradiction in terms. And so in regards to persecution, he states, when officials restrict church attendance to a certain number, they attempt to impose a restriction that in principle makes it impossible for the saints to gather as the church. When officials prohibit singing in worship services, they attempt to impose a restriction that in principle makes it impossible for the people of God to obey the commands of Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. When officials mandate distancing, they attempt to impose a restriction that in principle makes it impossible to experience the close communion of believers. MacArthur goes on to assume persecution is taking place now and states, Although we in America may be unaccustomed to government intrusion in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is by no means the first time in church history that Christians have dealt with the government overreach or hostile rulers. As a matter of fact, persecution of the church by government authorities has been the norm, not the exception, throughout church history. MacArthur continues this train of thought, and he states, As government policy moves forward, further away from biblical principles, and as legal and political pressures against the church intensify, we must recognize that the Lord may be using these pressures as means of purging to reveal the true church. Succumbing to government overreach may cause churches to remain closed indefinitely. How can the true church of Jesus Christ distinguish herself in such a hostile environment? There's only one way, bold allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he stating? He's stating to do what verse 14 says, which is to have greater courage because of persecution by speaking the word of God, by taking that stance. So whether or not you view our current situation as unfair Christians, treatment of Christians specifically, wherever we do find persecution of Christians, wherever we do find persecution of our faith, we need to do what these Christian brothers did, which is to have more courage, to take a stand, to say that we will continue to preach Jesus. What is your reaction when you hear of those who are persecuted, beaten, or killed? Do you shrink in fear? Do you hide amid persecution? Or will we, like, Christ, like the Christians that took courage from Paul's imprisonment, or those who were being thrown into the arena to be killed by animals, take more courage, have more courage, be fearless in that proclamation of the gospel? A man who was visiting the Colosseum reflected on it, saying, I stood uncovered to the heavens above where he, God, sits from whom they gladly died and asked myself, would I, could I die for him tonight to get this gospel to the ends of the earth? I prayed most fervently in that Roman arena for the spirit of a martyr, for the working of the Holy Spirit in my heart as he worked in Paul's heart when he brought him on his handcuffed way to Rome. He added that those early Christians lived on the threshold of heaven within a heartbeat of home, no possessions to hold them back. Pray that we have that same type of courage and spirit. The last circumstance that Paul brings up in this text is opposition or rivalry. The emphasis here tends to, or seems to be those who are taking advantage of Paul's imprisonment, and then from that imprisonment, that unseen circumstance and that persecution, they're using it to 
for their ambition, for their gain in opposition of him. Verse 15, starting in verse 15, Paul says, Some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So it seems that some see Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity for them to gain influence, to gain the ability to have people know them, prestige. And this isn't the first time Paul faced something like this. Actually, it's kind of a common theme if you read Paul. For example, in 1 Corinthians, there's this struggle between those who are talking about being of Peter, being of Apollos, being of Christ, rather than being of Paul. 2 Corinthians, Paul declares, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. The super apostles were these false teachers who tried to show themselves superior to Paul, and Paul had to denounce them. In Galatia, Paul's authority as an apostle was being questioned, which is why he spends the beginning part of it talking, recounting about how he became an apostle, how he received the gospel from Christ and not from other apostles. He didn't derive it from anyone but God. And so he had to refute the this authority, this, these people who are pretending to be more than him in, in Galatia. So here we see Paul addressing those who seem to find it an opportune time now that he's in prison to be able to gain influence. But there's a difference here. What Paul does in Galatia and Corinth is he renounces them. Here he says he rejoice. Why is that? With those in Galatia, Paul unequivocally denounces them. He says that those who twist the gospel would be damned. He called them accursed. And then with the super apostles in Corinth, he actually says that they're Satan's servants in disguise. Here, Paul rejoices. The difference seems to be the content, not their intent. This, this is, that is, even though these individuals were motivated by selfish ambition, they wanted to gain power, they were preaching the right message. They were saying the right things. And so for Paul, it's not about his own authority. It's not about his own, um, his own pride. Instead, it's about what is actually being said, right? His motivation for life is this message, this proclamation of Jesus as king, the gospel of salvation through faith. And because of that, even when people do it, even when they stomp on him to get there, to be able to say that message, he's okay with it. He's, he wants that message announced accurately. So we, we tend to want to rejoice in people's success, right? We see people who do something well, get recognized for it, and we're happy for them. But then there's also that feeling sometimes, especially when it's something that we're good at, when we pride ourselves in. And somebody else gets recognized for it. Somebody else is better than us. There's that little bit of envy, that little bit of jealousy that builds in us, right? If you really love soccer and your friend is better at you than it, or they get the prize and you don't, they get recognized. Or, you know, you work and you don't get recognized, but your coworker does. They get employee of the month, employee of the year, whatever it is. Whatever we find ourselves grasping, whatever we feel our identity is moving towards and somebody else is recognized, we can feel that envy. I can look at others who have the opportunity to do do full-time ministry or they're able not to have to work two jobs and be able to go to school, all those things, and I feel, why can't I have that? Or they preach better than me. All those things can, when you hold on to it as your identity, it becomes something that is prideful. 
we find our identity in something, the created thing, rather than Jesus. And so how do we fight that? What Paul is trying to tell us is, number one, to pray that our identity is in the message of Jesus, who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and that that is being proclaimed. And then we need to pray for those who we feel are in opposition to us, that they also proclaim that message through being better than us. I was listening to Mark Dever the other day, and he was talking about how young young guys who are, are rising up as elders in the church, and he says he wants them to be better than him, right? Because some people feel like they should be envious, and he's like, no, I want them to be better than me because then they can proclaim Jesus more than me, better than me. That That ability is because we want Jesus proclaimed. We need to pray that our first aim in life is the glory of God. So let me kind of wrap all of this together for us. So when I approach a text, when we approach a text, especially something as densely packed as Paul's writings, it, it, there's so many different ways you can go about it. And I can approach the Bible sometimes as a bit of a static text, right? It's kind of bound in a leather cover, verses, chapters, all of that. And I can think that Paul or this book was written to me specifically. And that's true in some sense, but there's an audience, there's a reason for each of those books being written. So when Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, he had a specific reason. They're called occasional letters, right? There was an occasion that sparked why he wrote what he wrote. And so there's a specific reason. So in in Philippians, in Corinthians, we, we see there's a movement to the text because there's an occasion, there's a reason that he's trying to address. Each, everything is building towards an occasion, a reason. And so what that means is that there's a form to the text, right? And so we look at verse 12, it says, now I want you to know. There, there's two things that it indicates to us. Number one is that it's the end of a section, the end of an introduction, verses 1 through 11. And then it's moving on to a new section, moving towards the point that Paul wrote that text. And so what we want to recognize logically that this is moving, it's building. It's not some isolated text where there's, you know, six chapters or six verses, six and a half verses, but it's actually building on itself towards something. And so we can't miss the forest for the leaves. We can't look at a single leaf and miss this entire movement of the text. So what Paul is doing is he's reaching towards a a middle point of this book where he talks about Jesus, the glory of Jesus. If we look, for example, at this specific, those specific verses again, did you notice that in the text, in every verse, Paul mentions Christ or the gospel, right? In verse 12, he says that he celebrates the advancement of the gospel. Verse 13, that his bonds are for Christ. Verse 14, he celebrates his Christian brothers speaking the word of God. Verse 15, He mentions those who preach Christ out of envy. Verse 16, those who preach Christ out of love. Verse 17, he preached those who preach Christ from envy again, unworthy motives. And then lastly, Paul rejoices that Christ is being proclaimed. At every turn, he re-envisions his entire context in the light of Christ and the gospel. And that's what I've tried to highlight for us today. There's a logical chain of thought, a series of explanation that leads to the glory of Christ in the book of Philippians. Because of that, for example, I'll read one, I'll jump forward, chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. He says that Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God 
equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That forward looking to um, what he writes, right, when you're reading that, Paul is talking about how he empties himself. He emulates Christ by dying to himself and seeing everything, every situation, everything he does in light of Christ. Why? Because Christ emptied himself. So he's going to empty himself to be filled with Christ. If God the Son can empty himself and die for us, how can we do anything but die to ourselves and rejoice in that truth? How can we moan and whine about our circumstances when the God of the universe has literally taken up our problems, our pains, our hunger, our thirst, our unforeseen circumstances, our persecution, our opposition, including our vile, our evil, our hatred, our anger, our greed, our lust, and allowed himself to be stapled to a tree? Paul plays or says a little later in chapter one, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. God has given himself completely over so that we may have life. And Paul says, I'm going to give myself completely over in response He is a spokesperson for Jesus, nothing more and nothing less. His entire life is dedicated to one thing and one thing only, the proclamation of the goodness of God in Jesus Christ, accomplished on the cross and applied to those who believe by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ-centered living is not a buzz phrase. It's not something we say to sound holy. It is literally a life centered on Jesus. It seeks to animate our every thought, our every words, our every action, every motive. I think we can be tempted sometimes to think that Paul is unique, right? He's this great, great apostle who could be beaten, shipwrecked, and all these things, and do it with a smile on his face. He wrote half the New Testament, right? Um, And aside from Jesus, Paul is probably the most influential person to walk this earth. So, of course, Paul or God used Paul in amazing ways, but he was just a man like you or I. It wasn't something inherently great in Paul that got him, that gave him the ability to do that. It was God, the same God, the same Holy Spirit who empowers us to be able to do that. Those who found courage in Paul's chains, those who proclaim the gospel in light of persecution throughout Christian history, even today in places where people are being beheaded for proclaiming Jesus, they're everyday Christians like you and me. What empowered them was God, not themselves. What is even more clear is Paul is writing this letter hoping, praying, wanting that the Philippians to catch on to this vision of rejoicing in Christ, of living their lives, reorienting themselves in light of that. He's not writing this to talk about how great he is and how he could see everything in light of Christ. He wants Christians, the Philippians, to do the same. What Paul is saying is not some high ideal, but a practical pastoral encouragement for all of us. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. He's saying that our time here is short. 
Everything, including our daily comforts like movies, games, board games, books, social media, everything and anything should be done with the intention and hope that God will be glorified, that many will be saved. Everything, including our present distress, our unforeseen circumstances, persecution, and opposition. Reflecting on Jesus' incarnation is not just a theological exercise, it's a reflection on a powerful reality, and it should literally animate everything that we do. We need to stop looking at our situations to see how convenient it can be for us, how much comfort we can get from it. We need to look at our circumstances instead and see how it can be used to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to look at ourselves not as autonomous beings, but rather as those who would die to ourselves and live for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's easy to say things like wanting you to be the only reason for our lives, that you alone is what animates us. And yet, Lord, we know that we can do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, not in anything inherent in ourselves, but through you, through God, who empowers us to be cleansed, to live a new life, to be able to say that you are Lord and that we are nothing but your bondservants, that we have died to ourselves and now live for you. I pray that that motivation will help us go through our difficult times, our distressing times, and be able to see you, be able to say your name, be able to preach your word in every situation, every circumstance, every discomfort, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.